0: I recently came across an article called The Urgent Need for a Wellness Industry Designed for and by Black Women. And I was really grateful to read this because it opened my eyes to how much the mainstream wellness industry is dominated by white faces. And this is something that I've really been taking a look at and examining And the need to see more people represent in the wellness space, so that they can feel understood and and welcome, and so that it's not co-opted by white people, especially white women, who tend to be at the forefront of the wellness industry. And Latrice, that's something I would love to hear your perspective on. I know that you are very focused on Black women's mental health and healing, and I think there's two sides of this conversation. There's the side of you supporting Black women, but also there's a opportunity to educate women and anybody who isn't Black and really guide this wellness world into a place of more equality and representation. So I'm curious for you, what has been your experience with the wellness industry and just, or in your case, the mental health and healing? I don't know if you would put it fully under that wellness umbrella, but What is it that you've been noticing recently? Do you see it that a shift is happening or are we still in a place where it's really dominated by white people?
1: We're definitely in a space where mental health and wellness is dominated by white people. I don't think that that's something that will necessarily ever really change because if we really look at the history of mental health and wellness. It wasn't something that was ever created for the benefit of Black people. Early on in the history of the establishment of the mental health industry, it was used against Black people. It was used to describe Black people who were against slavery, Black people who didn't want to be slaves, Black people who raged against the machine, as they say, as having some type of illness. So it's always been weaponized when it comes to black and brown bodies, uh, specifically here in America. And so over the years, generations upon generations upon generations, there's been this stigma that has been developed around seeking out mental health treatment, but also just engaging in social services as a whole Because there's never really been an opportunity for Black people to be able to trust the industry itself. So you have this industry that's extremely dominated by white people who claim that they are here to help. They claim that they want to support us as we move through whatever progression of mental and emotional healing that's necessary for us. But they don't ever really take the opportunity to understand the reality of our struggles. And the reality of what it means to be a black person in America and all of the trauma that's experienced generationally that has just compounded over decades and decades and really, you know, centuries here in this country and how we are affected by that today. And so it's been, I mean, even, you know, now with everything that's been going on with the assassination of George Floyd and, you know, a lot of the Black Lives Matter movement protests that have been going on all over the country and really all over the world, I have really been flabbergasted by the amount of white or non-black clinicians who are unable to separate themselves from their biases for the benefit of their clients. It's very disheartening.
0: Wow. Yeah, I can imagine. And thank you so much for sharing that and for the work that you're doing to make it more inclusive and come from a place of understanding from a perspective that somebody who is white can't in the same way that you'll be able to. And that relatability, I think that we need so many more voices in this conversation from people of all different types, that diversity there. And you know as I've really stepped back and examined my own biases and worked on my anti-racism and being an ally in this world I've also felt really amazed and it's been such an eye-opening experience for me to like realize how much I've surrounded myself or or even maybe not purposefully like I don't know if I would say that. I don't think I would like not to think I should say that I did this purposefully but working in this wellness world as Jason and I have for so long, I think it was really eye opening when I started to examine who I've been around and these voices that I hear and the people I follow on social media and even the people that we've had in our podcasts, you know, like that reality check of, oh, wow, like we've had a lot of white men, we've had a lot of white women on here. And I certainly don't want to exclude anyone. So it's a tough thing because there's this one side of, wanting to be an ally, but then at the same time, you know, there's only so much that I can understand based on my experiences. And so I think the beauty in your work is not only speaking out about this, Latrice, but also being a different voice in this conversation. And mental health is just so important, especially right now with COVID, right? I mean, we have a really tough time that we're in. It's we do have the racism that we're addressing simultaneously. With COVID and both of those things combined, I think, can have a huge impact on mental health. And I'm sure you're seeing a lot of that, too.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's a lot of people are describing it as a double pandemic that's taking place right now. And it really is. It's just that only one of those pandemics is new. The other pandemic, the pandemic of racism, it's not new. It's just new to people who are waking up to the reality of it. You were saying something about the reality of the fact that, you know, you try not to. That's what you were saying, that you hope that you are not the person that is contributing to that. And you're not intentionally doing so. And that, you know, I always think about that whenever I am talking to colleagues that are you know, not black about working in this space and how they can best support black people. I always try to stress to them that the reality is that racism is a pervasive issue. Everyone has been impacted by racism. Obviously, not in the same ways. Obviously, there's varying levels of intensity, there's varying levels of connection to the racist structures that exist, but everybody has been impacted by it. So there's a lot of white people who, when you say racist, that's like spitting in somebody's face. Like if you say, oh, you did something that's racist, you said something that's racist. And white people tend to get very up in arms about that. And I guess understandably so, because no one wants to be painted as a racist. No one wants to believe that they have racist tendencies. But because racism is so pervasive in our country, you can't help it. And not being able to acknowledge the reality, the amount of pervasiveness, that's really the only word that I can think of uh, because it is a pervasive issue. Racism is a part of the fabric of America. It is built into the laws. It's built into the systems. It's built into how we interact with each other. It's built into marketing and media. It's built into how we receive our news it is a part of America. And the longer that we go trying to ignore that fact, the more we are going to end up dividing ourselves and hurting ourselves. And the more difficult it's going to be for us to be able to get over that. So yes, you may not be intentionally engaging in racist behavior, or you know, you may not be consciously acting in racist ways or attempting to benefit from the racist structures that exist, but you are participating in it because that's what America is. That's how America was built. So it's not so much about taking offense to the reality of the racism that exists, but being able to identify it so that you can then be intentional about circumventing it or pushing back against it or confronting it. But we can't do that until we are willing and able to acknowledge it within within ourselves, the reality that it exists.
0: Absolutely. And I think that's part of, as you were saying, this awakening period for people that aren't black, and that the first layer there is self-awareness and acknowledging it and not being afraid to admit it. And I think, as you were saying, a lot of people feel very confronted by that because we are told not to be racist. And yet, as you're saying, (laughs) our culture kind of supports us in being racist in a lot of ways. And that's something that I think is so important to address, especially for us on the show. Jason and I are both white, but a lot of our listeners are white and we want to make sure that they are creating self-awareness for themselves, too, and not just assuming that they're not racist. And you know, one of the things that's really helped me is it's not enough to say that you're not racist, but you have to be very adamant about acting anti-racist and, and making these decisions and growing your awareness. I'm really grateful that you're bringing that up, too, Latrice, because you know our aim here is to really educate and inspire our audience to think differently. And this is uncomfortable. I mean, the the title of our show is about getting uncomfortable. And this specific topic can feel very uncomfortable for a lot of people in a lot of different ways. And we're just so grateful to have you on here to speak so openly about it.
1: Having the opportunity to come and speak about it, because I think it's one of those things where we have to be willing to educate each other, we have to be willing to invite each other into spaces that can allow us to be able to impact perspectives and you know perceptions and thought processes and modes of taking action and things like that and so this is a space that you all hold within your community is a space that it's not necessarily that I wouldn't be welcomed in that space because I'm comfortable wherever I go but more so that the idea of me being in that space is more of an afterthought than something that's brought up to the forefront. So you taking the opportunity to be intentional about reaching out to me and say, hey, I want us to have this conversation. I want to share this conversation with my audience so that if they never hear these words anywhere else, you know that you have provided them with an opportunity to hear it here. So, taking that action and allowing me access to your audience so that they can be exposed to the truth and the reality of what it means to be Black in America, what it means to be a Black woman in America, and how that impacts our mental health, that's huge. And I think it's not lost on me for sure.
2: Latrice, I wanted to acknowledge something that throughout the course of this entire year that I've kind of looked deeper into myself for any ways that I have been perhaps myopic in terms of my appreciation of black culture in the sense that if I look at a lot of my heroes that are authors, musicians, entertainers, I look at so many of that have shaped my creative life as an artist, and many of them are black men and black women. But I realized that I had never really taken A deeper look into say the black experience or the history, right? And to me, I feel like as an offshoot of that, it feels to me like a lot of people I have discourse with, they think that African history just like begins with slavery, right? And they don't acknowledge that, again, for what I've been learning, you know, the deep contributions to mathematics and astronomy and medicine, architecture, civilization, you know, most of those things are not just ignored, but intentionally suppressed, right? Like thinking about a lot of philosophers that maybe we give adherence to from Greek culture, like you know Socrates and Plato and those guys spent years in Africa learning from African philosophers, right? But we never hear about that kind of stuff. And so for me, it's acknowledging my own ignorance in all this, and also acknowledging how Black artists and authors and luminaries have impacted my life and touched my soul in a way. But then beyond that, going, wait, I don't want to just stop there. I want to learn more about, what this experience is, what the history is. So that I don't just stop at education and inspiration, right? It seems like my journey in this has been feeling inspired, okay, I'm going to educate myself on a deeper level, but beyond just awareness and education, it seems that it's been fostering a deeper sense of empathy in my heart, but then also action. I'm curious with what you see is is that kind of a typical process of like okay, we don't just want to stop at education and awareness. How do we make that jump into actual empathy? but then taking action beyond that.
0: Well, that's a huge part of your work, isn't it, Latrice? Like on your website right now, and you have these kind of like three pillars or three basic steps, which is identify, educate, implement. And implementation is the action Jason's talking
1: about, right? Yes, it absolutely is. Anything in life that you are trying to accomplish, I believe those three steps Are the steps that you have to take in order to be able to manifest that thing and see that thing come into fruition? So that's for the tangible as well as for the intangible. You have to identify, educate, and implement. And I have a masterclass, it's a free masterclass called Empower Your Vision Masterclass. And it's extremely powerful because it walks you through those three steps. And one of the things that I stress in that master class and really in all of my teachings is that the most important, all three are important, but the most important is implementation because there is no change without implementation. I mean the definition of change, like by definition, means that you gotta do some shit different. You know, you have to do something different. If you are learning new things, if you're identifying what the issue is, you're educating yourself about why you're in that space, you're educating yourself about what needs to happen in order to get out of that space, but you're not actually doing anything different, then the first two steps meant absolutely nothing. So by definition, to change is to do something different, is to implement. So if there is no implementation, there is no progress, there is no growth. There is no forward movement. So the implementation piece is extremely, extremely important. And in my opinion, it is the most important piece of the entire system.
2: Kind of extrapolating this on a bigger level, Latrice, one thing that I've been really, as I've been becoming more educated on the corruption of so many systems, right, in this country, from the financial system to real estate to media to I mean, we look at pretty much damn near every system there is, that they are skewed to exclude and promote racism in these structures and systems against people of color, and obviously favor white people, in particular white men. And I'm looking at this, and one conversation that I've been having with friends of mine, many of them people of color, is like, is reform possible? Is it even something we should be focusing on? Or should we rather focus our efforts on dismantling a system that no longer works and reinventing something from scratch. And I'm curious what your thoughts are on, in terms of systemic change, whether reform can be beneficial or if we should be focusing on, for lack of a better word, tearing the whole damn thing down and starting from scratch, if that's even possible.
1: Yeah, I think it's a combination of the two. I'm not one of those. I'm a very gray area kind of person. I have one of my best friends, She's like very black and white. And I'm always, it's like a running joke between the two of us where I'm like, you know, come on into the gray spaces, because (laughs) there's a lot that happens in the gray. And I agree. Yeah. Yeah. Like life exists in the gray space. For some reason, especially in America, we want everything to be black or white. Either you are a Republican or you are a Democrat. Either you are the 1% or you are the 99%. Either you are this or you are that. We don't really want to acknowledge the reality of the girth of the gray space. But existing and acknowledging that gray space is really where the bulk of the growth is going to happen. So when it comes to reform versus dismantling, I think it's a little bit of both. I think a little bit of both needs to happen. The idea of dismantling a system and completely tearing a system down, it's a very hefty, hefty goal. It's something that requires a great deal of time, a great deal of effort, a great deal of structured and intentional collaboration across multiple races, classes, economic groups, educational statuses, like it's going to require a all hands on deck type of mentality. And so I do believe that that can happen at some point in time. And the way that we get to that point in time is through intentional reform. And so being intentional about collaborating on reforms in little pockets that impact the system eventually equate to a complete overhaul of the system. And I know that there's a lot of people who just don't believe that that's something that can happen, but I'm an optimist. I'm a realist, but I'm also an optimist. I'm a silver linings kind of girl. And I'm a therapist by trade, which means that I innately have to believe in the power of change and that human beings can change and that we can facilitate change. And so because I have that just undying belief in humanity, I have to believe that at some point in time, we can get to the place that we all want and need to be. But we need to be very realistic about what that's going to look like and how much time it's going to take for us to be able to get there.
0: Yes. I saw that with your work, a lot of one of the common words that you use is healing as well as manifesting. And one thing that we were examining recently was whether or not manifestation in a way is kind of like a privilege. Like, do you think that this idea of if you just want something bad enough or you think about it or you're visualizing it, is that something that's available to everybody or is that something that's limited to privilege? And it's kind of like, again, like examining all of these different practices and wondering, is what we're recommending universal? Is it available to everyone? Is it about equality or is it something that maybe more complicated than that and that it's not as easy as just wanting something or willing something or praying for it, visualizing it. I'm really curious about your experience with manifestation your perspective on that.
1: Yeah, so manifestation is not a privilege. It is a birthright. And I wholeheartedly believe that every human being that exists and that has ever existed has the right and the ability to manifest, I think where privilege comes in is in the idea of what we hope to manifest or the timeline sometimes around how long it will take to manifest. In essence, really just the ability to manifest, like what our perception of The ability to manifest looks like. That's where the privilege comes into play. So, when I teach about manifestation, I'm teaching the reality of what manifestation looks like. I think a lot of times, especially over the last, I would say, five to seven years or so, I mean, longer than that, but over really the last five to seven years, this idea of law of attraction and manifestation and even yoga, you know, yoga, meditation, like all of those meta type of things, metaphysical type of things have really been whitewashed and very much so gentrified, just like, you know, every Black neighborhood in America, it seems. But there's this gentrification of these ideas, like Jason said, that originated in Africa and in African spirituality. And it has been extremely whitewashed and the marketing of it has really painted it as something that is only for a certain group of people. So a lot of the basis of my work, specifically working with Black women, is to make sure that we understand that healing and manifestation does belong to us. It is something that we deserve. It is something that we are capable of. Because the marketing of it, the trending topics and the news articles and the imagery that we see around it completely cuts us out of it. That doesn't mean that it's not ours. It is our birthright, as is every human being's birthright. So I think, you know, the privilege comes in in the painting of the picture. That's where the privilege comes in. But It's available to anyone. It doesn't matter what your circumstances are. You can manifest whatever it is you hope to manifest. And my goal is to teach people, specifically Black people, Black women, the skills that we need in order to do that in real life. So really doing away with the imagery that has been burned into our minds telling us that this is not for us, that this doesn't belong to us, and showing us how we can get it in our lives and our everyday lives.
2: With that, Latrice, and you working with your clients and Trust Village, I saw your, your amazing Facebook group. I just love the energy and the vibe that you have there. With so many generations of my goodness subjugation oppression systemic racism I mean we go through the whole gamut of everything psychologically that is in the DNA the lineage right and you're talking about reclaiming what's yours with healing and manifestation and and, and royalty you know I mean what comes in my mind is like really looking at the deep roots and history of Africa what are some of the psychological or emotional blocks that you help black women with that might be coming up for them in terms of say self-worth issues or maybe not enoughness or victim consciousness. I'm just using those as examples in the conversation, but what are some things you see come up and that you help women work with to maybe get past those things and come into their full worth and their full value and ownership of what they want in life?
1: Yeah. So for me, I embarked upon my own journey. My ideal client, as they say, my client avatar, which is what we say in the entrepreneurship world, is me. I am my ideal client. My journey mirrors that of so many Black women in America who educated and looking for strong and supportive and nurturing relationships, having a great deal of emotional trauma, some of us physical trauma, that we're having to find our way around a lot of the women that I work with deal with a lot of the same things that most women deal with. A lot of the Black women that I work with deal with a lot of the same things that most Black people deal with. I think the struggle is that where those two characteristics intersect with each other. So we're not only plagued by the struggles of Black people, We're not only plagued with the struggles of women, we are plagued with both. And that's a very unique intersection that I think gets overlooked by a lot of people who are charged with the responsibility of providing assistance in those areas. So I focus on setting boundaries, being able to communicate appropriate expectations. I focus on healing from past traumas being able to change our perspective in the way that we see things. I focus on really making deep, meaningful connections with other human beings and allowing ourselves to be released from negative and toxic relationships, which is something that a lot of Black women struggle with because we have been socialized for hundreds of years to put everyone else before ourselves and it doesn't matter what anyone says it doesn't matter what anyone does it doesn't matter that they hurt your feelings it doesn't matter how they treat you you still have a responsibility to turn the other cheek because you are the nurturer because you are the strong one Uh, you can't have feelings you can't show your feelings You can't be upset about something like you just have to bottle up your emotions and just take it and continue to give and give and give because they're going to keep asking and asking and really demanding, honestly. So I work with Black women around giving themselves permission, giving ourselves permission to say no, giving ourselves permission to protect our mental and emotional headspace giving ourselves permission to walk away from relationships that are not serving us and to be intentional about finding relationships that can nurture and support us, about healing our relationship with money and with our finances, about putting ourselves out on a limb, taking a chance on ourselves to attempt at manifestation, uh, reclaiming our birthright of manifestation, and doing so from a genuine place of healing, a genuine place of joy. So those are pretty much everything that I talk about. Every lesson that I teach comes back to one of those categories, because that's the reality of our existence as Black women.
2: When you started to say no, you started to have your agency and sovereignty as a black woman manifest in a different way, right? As you're practicing this for yourself, as you said, your own ideal avatar. Yes. What kind of things did you notice in terms of how people would react or respond to you, Latrice, and likewise with the women you work with, as they start really, really commanding that true inner voice and leveraging their full power? How are people responding to that? And what kind of things do you notice in people's interactions with you?
1: Well, so there's three different reactions. And I try to prepare my, I call them my villagers, my followers, my supporters, my students. I call them my villagers because it's a village. It's a trust village. So I always try to prepare my villagers for the three different types of reactions or responses that you might get as you begin to embark upon your change journey. One is the ideal, right? You get the person that is happy for you, that you're making these changes, very, very supportive of your changes, maybe even kind of like, damn, it's about time, you know, like really just supportive and kind of got your back type of person. That's the ideal response, of course. But then there are some people who may be a little hesitant to get on board with your changes. It's not so much that they don't want to see you do better or that they don't want to see you progress and grow and manifest. It's just that they are used to experiencing you in a certain type of way. And so now that you've decided that you want to become this new person or now that you've decided that you want to make these changes, it's just going to take them a little bit of time to get familiar with who this new person is. And I think that that's a healthy way of growing a relationship and moving through a relationship. I think if you see someone who may not necessarily get it right every single time, but they are making the effort to support your new boundaries, to support whatever your endeavors are, to understand where you're coming from and why you're making these changes, and you start to actually see that they are getting on board over time. I think that that's a relationship that's worth saving. But then you have that third category. And that third category, those are the people that they don't give a shit about your growth. They don't care that you're trying to better yourself. They don't care that you're doing something that makes you happy or that you are in pursuit of genuine and pure joy in your life. They want you to stay where you are because that version of you benefits them. So whatever state you were in within that relationship serves them best. And so they don't want you to make those changes. They don't want you to become a better version of yourself because ultimately they lose out. That's to the detriment of them. And so those are the people that try to make it difficult for you to make changes or try to convince you that your quest is futile. Those are the people that try to tell you down or start rumors about you or are very intentional about pointing out to you just how difficult the path that you're trying to take really is. Those are the people that you need to run, not walk, run in the opposite direction. Those are the people that are very clearly not meant to be a part of your life. Those are the people that it's time to shed. And I go into a lot more detail about that in my masterclass. I do a module called It Takes a Village, and we talk about how to find your people. And one of the things that I teach is you have two different types of people. You have your PRN people, and then you have your core people. Your core people are the people that you're going to do life with. Those are your supporters. Not always family members, unfortunately, but people that are like family. And then you have your PRN people. And PRN is just like when you go to the doctor's office and they write you a prescription for some pain pills or something like that. And on the bottle, it says PRN, take as needed. So your PRN people are people who serve a very specific purpose in your life. And when their purpose is over, it's time for them to move on. And that purpose can be one of many different things. It can be a lesson that you're needing to learn about people. It can be a lesson that you're needing to learn about yourself. It can be a lesson that you need to learn about how you feel about certain things, what your wants, what your needs are. It can be, you know, a lot of different things. But once they have served their purpose in your life, then it's time for you to let them go. And so I think a lot of times we try to hold on to PRN people that are well past their expiration date, and that's what causes us the level of pain and frustration that we experience in our relationships. So that third category that I mentioned, more than likely, those are PRN people who are well past their expiration date, and they're realizing that it's time for them to be dropped off. And they don't want to do that because they don't benefit from your healing.
2: It seems to me like the archetypes you just detailed so brilliantly, Latrice, mirror in certain ways. I'm wondering if you vibe with this the way my mind is going right now, that the way that people are responding to Black Lives Matter and amplifying Black voices and talking about equal rights and really just granting more not just equality, but respect and love and empathy for people of color. That third category you're talking about, I've often sat and thought about the deep psychological basis for why people feel so threatened by the idea of creating a level playing field or granting reparations or extending equal rights. There's many, many tentacles to this conversation, but psychologically, I suppose, tying this into white fragility and the idea of, oh, I might lose money or I might lose privilege or I might lose power. It seems to me that a lot of this mentality in not wanting things to change is based in this fear of losing out or losing status or losing money or losing privilege. And to me, I've just sat with it like sometimes I don't understand why people can't see that there's enough for everyone. That there's enough wealth to be distributed equally and respectfully and righteously, that there's enough jobs that we can level the playing field. And some people are freaking the fuck out at this idea. I guess I'm saying this because I'm curious, what do you think are the underlying psychological reasons why people are so violently opposing this? What are they so afraid of?
1: I think it's multi-layered. I think one, which is probably the thickest layer, is the socialization. And there has been since the beginning of the U.S., right? So since even before the U.S. was officially founded, from the first time that those handful of individuals said, you know, fuck the queen, (laughs) fuck the king, we're going to do our own thing. And they came on over here. There has always been a underlying fear tactic. That has been used to get people to do what they want them to do. And so, as race relations developed in America from the very, very beginning, that fear tactic just got more and more sophisticated to the point where, like we mentioned earlier, it is baked into the fabric of our country. And so, from a psychological standpoint, There's this internal fear that has been reinforced over and over and over that if one group increases in power, it innately decreases the power of another group. And again, that's that black and white nature of America, not really wanting to acknowledge the gray space, not really wanting to admit that. There is grace face that making sure that this family has food on their table does not innately take food off of your table. There's food to go around. You don't have to be afraid of allowing another group to exist. So, I think there's that, right? There's just that fear of scarcity that is extremely irrational, especially in America that has been baked into the fabric of the country. The other piece of that, I think, is the idea, again, that has been baked in. This idea that a particular group of people is innately undeserving of whatever power or joy or comfort or whatever it might be, whatever the thing is, equality, justice, that because of who they are, because of how they show up in this world, that those people are just completely undeserving of empathy, undeserving of equality, undeserving of a fair shot. And that has historically been Astronomical levels of cognitive dissonance that has existed amongst uh, white people in America, and I think because of the ferociousness of the atrocities that have taken place over these hundreds of years at the hands of white people in America, and then this ferocious devotion to Christianity. And the reality that those two things don't match up, the reality that it's just not logical for someone to believe in God and believe in the Bible and believe in Jesus and also have the level of hatred that they have in their hearts and in their beings for another human being, it doesn't make sense. It doesn't match up. And so the cognitive dissonance sets in and in order to be able to move past that cognitive dissonance in order to be able to function, right, mentally and emotionally, we have to convince ourselves that our actions are justified. And the only way to do that is to dehumanize the person on that actions are being directed toward. And in this particular case, it's an entire group of people that our actions are being intentionalized on. And so we have to believe that Black people are innately undeserving, that they are horrible people, that they're not intelligent enough, that they don't have any empathy, that they are all rapists and murderers and thieves, and that if we give them any type of power, if we give them any type of empathy, that they are going to do to us what we've done to them for hundreds of years. And that's just not the case. The reality is that we just want to live, you know, like we just want to live. We just want y'all to leave us the fuck alone and let us live, you know, Um, (laughs) that's like, that's literally all we're asking for is let us live. Let us live the way that we want to live. Let us be able to feed our families Let us be able to get education. Let us be able to express ourselves creatively. Let us live. We're not trying to hold a grudge. We're just trying to live. And so the idea of that basically means see me as a human. And so for a country that has for hundreds of years had to systemically dehumanize an entire group of people. We can't allow ourselves to see you as human because then we have to reckon with the atrocities and the egregiousness of the atrocities that we have inflicted upon you. And for the vast majority of people, they just don't have the emotional maturity to be able to handle that. Right.
0: One of uh, your posts online was talking about how important it is for the youth to have a safe space to heal and how dysfunctional adults were once emotionally injured youth who never learned how to process those emotions and how we have a responsibility to create spaces for them. And it was so wonderful to read that. And I think this is also part of the conversation is like, we have to step outside of our own egos, not just for ourselves, but for children and whether there are children or somebody else's children and working through our emotional injuries. And I think that's a huge part of therapy and mental health is like taking that personal responsibility.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And again, like I said, unfortunately because also built into the fabric of America is The inability to communicate effectively about emotions. And there's this, you know, machismo that has been built into America of what it means to be a strong and powerful nation is really to, you know, fuck over other people and never let them see you sweat and, you know, never break and always presenting this hard exterior because that is also something that has been universally bred in Americans. We have a society now that is incapable of accepting emotional truths, that is incapable of communicating the reality of what we're feeling uh, in a way that is conducive to healing. I was talking to a group of young ladies on Thursday night I do some work with this nonprofit organization here in South Florida called Young Women Impact in Neighborhoods. And we meet with the girls virtually now. We meet with them every Thursday and we just talk about different topics. And this week I facilitated the conversation. We were talking about identifying negative emotions. And one of the things that I really stress to them is that we have to Expand our emotional vocabulary and really be able to understand the basis of our feeling because the base of our feeling gives us information about the appropriate way to communicate that and respond to it. The issue that we run into more often than not is that feelings that have a similar base, things like uh, embarrassment and shame, and guilt are very similarly based in anger and sadness, like some mix of anger and sadness. And because society makes it a lot more acceptable to express anger than it is to express embarrassment or hurt or shame or guilt, we default to anger because it's close enough, right? Yes.
0: That's so true.
1: Yeah. Anger is the only universally acceptable negative expression of emotion, is anger. And we say that it's not because, you know, it's politically correct to say that anger is not okay. But the truth is that anger is the only socially acceptable expression of negative emotion. And so if I'm embarrassed, I can express it as anger. If I am hurt, I can express it as anger. If I am feeling guilty or shameful, I can express it as anger before I can be accepted in terms of expressing it as the truth of what it is. It's just the reality of our America, of the country that we live in. I think it's going to take for us to normalize healthy expression of emotion in order for us as a collective people, but specifically Black people, to be able to get to a place where we feel comfortable. And thankfully, there's been a lot of progress in that area. I feel very hopeful, not just in the Black community, but in America in general. I feel very hopeful about the direction that we're going in, in terms of our emotional expression, because it's becoming something that's trendy, and a part of me feels a little—I don't know—I just I have some iffy kind of feelings about that. But I also believe that it doesn't really matter why it starts. What matters is why it continues. And so I try to do my part in making sure that while this is trending right now, uh, we can reach the people who are jumping on the bandwagon and get them to make some real lifelong changes.
0: Yes, absolutely. It's a blessing that mental health is trending. (laughs) And and we can relate to that because sometimes I think Jason and I get triggered when the work that we're doing becomes trendy because then you think, Great, like are we just gonna look like everybody else that's doing and and you know, our work is based in our passion. Similar to you, Latrice, that our shared passion for mental health and and helping with people's emotional well being is really a big mission of ours. And yet, I don't know if you experience this, but there are times where you kind of get annoyed when a lot of people feel like they're hopping on the bandwagon. But as you said, simultaneously grateful for it, because ultimately, this isn't about dominating a field or whatever. And again, going back to the scarcity mentality, like there are so many people on this planet that if we can get everybody talking about the same thing, then that makes a bigger difference than a few people talking about it because you don't know who you're going to reach. And as we said at the very beginning, we need all different types of people talking about it. And often, it also reminds me of sustainability and environmental issues. A lot of people are talking about it, but we still have a long way to go. And there are a lot of people that are in resistance to climate change and they don't see why it matters if they buy things in plastic or, you know, they drive their cars and have a lot of uh, pollution or, you know, in our case, we're very passionate about the plant-based diet and educating people on that. I still, after over 10 years of working in that field, I'm constantly meeting people that don't really know that much about the plant-based diet or sustainability. And I think the same thing is true with mental health and emotional well-being and just wellness in general. There's still so many people that have never tried a yoga class or have never meditated before or don't know anything about manifestation. And so I think it's easy for us, since we're in that world, to feel like everybody's talking about something. But the reality is we still have a long way to go. And that's the benefit of something being trendy, I suppose.
1: (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. I always think about I liken it to the Saints. You know, I'm from New Orleans, born and raised, who that, you know? And uh, (laughs) before the Saints won the Super Bowl, it wasn't a good thing to be a Saints fan. And I grew up in a Saints household. Like we went through the bound paper bags and everything, you know, like we are hardcore Saints fans in my household uh, growing up. And then all of a sudden, we have this comeback team post-Katrina. So, you know, the whole world was kind of cheering us on to make this huge comeback from Hurricane Katrina. And then we win the fucking Super Bowl and the entire world now is a Saints fan. Everybody is wearing black and gold. Everybody is on the bandwagon. And I can tell you that, you know, in the city, we kind of felt some kind of way about that because it was kind of like, well, where were y'all when we were wearing a brown paper bag? <laughs> you know? But at the same time, though, we were grateful for that level of support because it allowed the city to start coming back faster than it normally would have. We have more eyes on the city now. And so, whereas before people could get away with, not doing what needed to be done and to support the city and to rebuild the city, it was a little bit easier to get things done. And still, I mean, not fully, you know, let's be honest, there's still some parts of New Orleans that look like Hurricane Katrina happened yesterday. And those typically are the Black neighborhoods that have not yet been gentrified. But overall, it put more eyes on the issues that existed in the city. And so we'll take those bandwagoners and, you know, hopefully we'll be able to convert some of them that don't just want to be a part of the trend, but actually be a part of the long-term healing of our country, you know, because it's something that it's going to take everyone. It is a all-hands-on-deck kind of situation. And so, you know, hopefully I'm grateful to be a part of that. I'm grateful to have the opportunity to participate in so many people's individual journeys, because I believe that those individual journeys are what eventually make the collective change. I'm a huge proponent of individual healing because the individuals make up the collective. And if every person in the collective is contributing to the collective from a healthier place, from an emotionally healthier place, then that makes the collective emotionally healthier.
0: Absolutely. I witnessed some of this happening too during the last few months of Black Lives Matter and noticing the response from some people that didn't seem to care in the past, didn't seem to be allies. And then suddenly it was like, in some ways, trendy, or there was a lot of pressure to show your support. And I'm curious how you felt about that. I mean, we could even look at the wellness industry. And I mean, the same is true for me and Jason. To be honest, like, we weren't being as intentional about bringing on diverse voices from, you know, and and diversity meaning so much more than skin color. But I think it grew our awareness. And there was moments where I thought, gosh, is it going to look like we're just performative or whatever? And, And so it's been an interesting experience as a white person because your eyes are being opened and you want to be supportive, but there's this fear of being performative. And yet, as you're saying, we simultaneously need to be taking more action here and so i guess it's always interesting like when these like growing awareness even if it's not considered trendy per se cuz i don't really like that word in this context but when that awareness is raised and more people are doing things it's probably ultimately more important that we do them even though we might be afraid to be seen as not doing it for the right reasons does that make sense and i'm curious about what your experience has been as you've seen all these changes happening over the last few months. And I'm sure you're noticing things that haven't changed yet. Yeah, This got brought up in an episode a few episodes ago, or maybe longer, but whenever it was, we there was this one brand that Jason and I are big supporters of, and I went on their social media, and they haven't mentioned Black Lives Matter at all. And I felt discouraged by that. And I'm looking through their social media, looking for people that aren't white, you know, in this wellness brand and thinking, Wow, like I can't even believe that you're not making public changes. But then again, I don't know what's happening behind the scenes with them and what their reasons are. And it's an interesting time for that.
1: Yeah, it absolutely is. You know, from where I stand, I think it's always important to be true to yourself, whatever that means. You have to be able to stand in your truth, you have to be able to defend your truth if that's what needs to happen but not necessarily feeling obligated to defend your truth, but just having the ability to say, this is how I feel. I may not like your truth. I may not agree with your truth, but I can respect the fact that you are holding true to it. At the same time though, I think it's important to be open to understanding other people's truth. And I think that's where the breakdown tends to occur when it comes to discussing race and racism in America. I don't really care for the word trendy either, but that is what's happening right now. You know, this idea of being anti-racist, it's very trendy right now. And I have my ideas about why I think that is why people seem to be as impacted by this instance, because this is not I mean, by far, this is not the first time that anything like this has happened. I mean, over the last five to six years, we have seen a ridiculous number of unarmed black men and women get shot down in the middle of the streets, on street corners, in parks, in Walmarts, in their cars, with their wife and children in the cars with them, like pretty much indiscriminately. We've seen this happen on camera. Over and over and over. I think that this time, though, was it was almost like the perfect storm this time because we had three incidents that took place, really four incidents, but three in particular um, that took place back to back to back in a time where people are sitting around at home with shit else to do, right? Right. And so we couldn't just lose ourselves in our day-to-day life and kind of say, out of sight is out of mind, like we've been able to do in the past. We had to focus on it because we're not doing anything else right now, most of us, right? So we have these three instances that showed three different sides of the same problem. And it was virtually impossible to ignore it. We have the shooting of Ahmad Aubrey, who was just taking a run, just going for a jog, minding his own business, going for a jog, and he was hunted down, hunted down by a group of vigilantes that went unpunished for murdering this man in broad daylight for no reason, absolutely no reason. Then shortly after that, we get the video of Amy Cooper in the park who really displayed what it looks like to be a white woman in America and have privilege and to be able to weaponize that privilege against a Black person. In that video, We saw her put on the theatrics. We saw her balloon a situation that didn't need to be ballooned in that way, all because she was asked to put a leash on her dog, which is actually like a law. Like that's actually like a thing that you're supposed to do. It's a very common thing that people ask you to do. But because it was a Black man that asked her to do it, she was mean and nasty to him. And then she got on the phone with the police and fabricated a story and painted herself as a victim. And I think that a lot of white women were impacted by that because it mirrored their own behavior to them. Whether you realize it or not, I'm sure that there are very few white women that exist in America that haven't painted themselves as the victim in that way in order to get whatever it is they want. And that's just, that's not just a white woman thing. I mean, that's a woman thing. I am not above dropping a tear to get my husband to do what I want him to do. Okay. So let's be clear. That's not a white woman, you know, exclusive thing. Like that's a woman thing. But in that instance, we saw how something that can be so innocuous becomes you know, potentially deadly when it is weaponized against a group of people. She was saying to him, I'm going to call the police and I'm going to tell them that a Black man is harassing me or attacking me. And the way she said it, it was a threat. She threatened him with his own Blackness and she knew what she was doing. And so we have the Ahmad Aubrey incident. Then we come almost immediately after that, we have this Amy Cooper incident that takes place. And then very shortly after that, we see George Floyd have the life literally snuffed out of him over the course of a 12-minute video. And then we see a close-up of the face of the person who is killing him, knowing that he's killing him, and visibly taking joy out in that moment, you know? It was these back-to-back experiences that happened in a span of collective attention. The audience was a captive audience in that moment. There was no way to just go on with life as usual because everybody is sitting down right now Nobody is doing anything. All you can do is think about those three incidents that took place back to back. And I think that was the catalyst, the combination of those things that really sparked the pressure that we see being placed on companies and organizations and individuals to take responsibility because it's not something that can be ignored anymore. Again, though, if you don't believe that Black Lives Matter, I would rather you say that, say it and own it and be upfront about it so that I can know who you are and I can act accordingly. So if your favorite company or your favorite brand does not support the Black Lives Matter movement or is not willing to even acknowledge that Black Lives Matter, I think that that's important information for you to have and that you should take that information and act accordingly.
0: Yes. And similar to what you're saying, too, not only is this a time where we have to face the reality of what's going on, but we also have less excuses not to take action towards change. I mean, when the protests were going on in Los Angeles, I mean, certainly they were so in your face at the very beginning. And I'm sure there are some that are still continuing in this city, but less apparent but there was no excuse not to go out and participate unless the COVID was a huge concern for you, but given the, the amount of time that we have on our hands now, for most of us, again, not everybody, but I remember thinking, like, how hard is it just to step outside your door when there are protests happening all around your city, and you can walk to them and just do something about it, but then also the opportunity to take that extra time you may have to read a book to watch a documentary on something and just to raise your awareness on this. And I certainly feel very grateful for that. And it's given me an opportunity to say, I like you said, I can't ignore it anymore. I can't pretend that this isn't my problem. I need to do something about this. And I'm fortunate enough that I have that time and space in my life at this moment to make it a priority to read those books and to Read the articles and to have the conversations. I think that, you know, going back to what you were saying about the silver lining, Latrice, it's just, I think it's a wonderful thing that we can have. We're encouraged to have these conversations, you know, like there's an openness in a lot of ways for many people to have these discussions online and even the hard discussions. We've certainly seen a lot of interesting things happen. Some people that we know used to have a brand that. Had a very racist name, and they were called out stronger than ever and finally made the decision to change the name of their brand. And I don't know if that would have happened were it not for this. Yeah. It's interesting to witness things like that because you wonder, like, again, is it performative or is it, like you're saying, the fact that we can't ignore this anymore, that we have to do something about it? And it's just a great opportunity in that sense. And I'm curious for you, Latrice, how has that affected the mental health of your community? Like specifically the women that are part of your programs and in your groups, how have they been responding to this? Has this been like more challenging for their mental health or has it in a way helped with their healing? Like what's been the response and what are some things that you're observing in the people that you help with therapy and coaching and all the work that you do?
1: Yeah. So it's a very interesting dynamic because like I said earlier, all of these things that we're witnessing that are being highlighted by the Black Lives Matter movement, this newfound consciousness around relations and racism in America, it's not new to the Black community. This is like dinner table conversation and has been for like literally my entire life. It's new to people outside of our community. This is a eye opening situation for people who don't have to live this every single day about, you know, the reality of what it means to exist in black skin anywhere in America, because nowhere is exempt here in America. So it's not necessarily a new phenomenon for us or something that we are newly trying to wrap our minds around, our collective minds around. I think that we are still impacted insofar as the impact of the threat itself to our actual lives and to the lives of the people that we love. You know, my husband is a Black man. My husband is Jamaican, like from Jamaica. He moved to America a month before we got married. And in Jamaica, or at least where my husband is from in Jamaica, the police are not as absolute as it is here. You know, in Jamaica, you know, they don't really all the time respect the police. And so when my husband first came here, that was right around the time that Mike Brown was killed, murdered by the police in the middle of the street in Ferguson. And I remember when all of that was taking place, my husband was going somewhere, like he was getting in the car to go somewhere. And I just felt this overwhelming uh, fear because he's a dark-skinned Black man. He's 6'2", and he's very loud and aggressive when he speaks because he's a Jamaican, and Jamaican's are loud and aggressive. And I remember saying to him one day, like, babe, when you go out there, if you get pulled over or anything like that, like, you cannot talk back to the police officer. At that time, we were in Texas. I said, you cannot talk back. I said, just do what they tell you to do. And he's like, babe, I'm a big man and, you know, just macho macho. And I was like, listen, your job is to come home to me. I don't give a shit what you have to do, to come home to me, but your job, your number one responsibility is to come home to me every single day. And if that means that you need to shut the hell up when a police officer is talking to you crazy, then you do that. But your job is to come home to me and don't ever let anything stop that from happening. That's a conversation that non-Black people don't really have any experience with because It's not a concern. It's not a worry. It's a genuine worry and concern for me. When my husband leaves this house, I know that there's a possibility he won't come back. And that the reason for him not coming back is purely the color of his skin. And that's a scary thought. And that's something that Black women all over the country are experiencing. About their husbands, about their brothers, their fathers, their children, their nephews and nieces, aunts, you know, the whole nine yards. Black bodies are completely and totally expendable in America. And so that reality is where the struggle lies because we have to find a balance between recognizing and preparing for that reality so that we can try to extend our lives for as long as we can, while also not caving or buckling under the weight of that reality. So it's a continual balancing act that has to happen. So that video of George Floyd and all of the videos, Ahmaud Arbery, Breonna Taylor, like all of it, it's not The fact that it's happening so much or the basis of why it's happening that affects us as much as it does, it's the reality, the possibility of it and the reality that it could be you, it could be someone that you love, that that is a very, very real and present threat in our lives every single day. But that we also have to find a way to keep living and keep trying to find joy and keep Pushing and some days is easier than others. Some days are, it feels more apparent than others. Some days it's just more difficult, you know, to categorize or to compartmentalize than other days. And so, a huge part of what I teach is how do you compartmentalize not just that reality, but all of the different things that we deal with in a day-to-day basis. How do you find a way to pull lessons, identify the lessons that our experiences, whether direct or indirect, have to teach us and then implement those lessons moving forward to facilitate our growth so that whatever comes our way, whatever it is that we're dealing with or whatever it is that we're facing, on any given day, we have the tools that we need in order to be able to face that.
2: I'm just like, on a deep cellular level, Latrice, like everything that you have so eloquently described, it's an interesting thing to hear you speak about your experience, about the Black experience in America, because obviously as a white-facing man, I have no direct experience of what that is like. But it also, on a physical level... I feel, even though I don't have a direct experience, a sense of empathy for what that must be like to every single day, leave your house, feel that fear. And even as you were describing, even if you are respectful and even if you keep quiet, I mean, even knowing that that's not a guarantee that your life won't be threatened. It's almost like no matter what you do, because of the color of your skin, every day you leave the house, go out into the street, drive a car, there's always the possibility of violence or death. And from a mental health perspective, Boy, oh boy, like you mentioned joy, right? Like how do you find joy amidst the weight of history, the weight of the present, the weight of all of these systems being designed to oppress and destroy you? I mean, I'm asking this in a very real way, like how do you maintain a sense of joy amidst all of this chaos and madness? Like specifically, how do you find that for yourself and how do you teach others to do that?
1: So I live all of my teachings. Everything that I teach in my masterclass, in my academy, I have a membership, an online membership program called Trust Village Academy, my podcast, Unicorns Talk Podcast, everything that I teach across any of my platforms, I live in my day-to-day life. So those two are are one and the same for me. And the way that I find joy, and that I recommend anybody find joy is to indulge in yourself. It's really going inward and connecting with the reality of who you are, the truth of who you are, and really indulging in that to find your joy. So, what I mean by that is because of the way that Black people are viewed in America and have always been viewed in America. It started, you know, very, very early on, this idea of having to present yourself as respectable. And we call it respectability politics. It's the idea that in order to be respected, you have to earn respect, that you don't just get respect from the simple fact that you are a human being and that it's your birthright to be respected, but that you have to present yourself as someone who is worthy of respect. And that's something that goes all the way back to slavery time, just like most of these things go back to slavery time, whereas Black people were constantly feeling the need to prove to white people that we deserve to be a whole man. And so that has really been inbred and ingrained in Black culture and in the Black community for hundreds of years, like since the beginning of our experience in America, and it still exists today. And so one of the things that we struggle with collectively, um, individually and collectively, is painting a picture or trying to fit the mold. Uh, We don't want to be the angry Black woman. So I can't, if I'm having a situation at work with another coworker, which happens all the time, coworkers disagree about things, but because I am the Black woman, I have to be very intentional about the words that I use. I have to be very intentional about my tone. I have to be very intentional about my facial expressions. I don't want to make anybody feel uncomfortable because then they're going to just dismiss me as the angry Black women, because apparently, according to society, Black women are always angry, which, you know, by the way, we have a whole lot of reasons to be pissed off most of the time. But (laughs) you know, it's always seen as a negative thing. And so you learn how to put on the face. You learn how to, as we call it, code switch, where you learn how to exist in alternate worlds. And so what I teach is taking a break from that from time to time. I wish that I could say, fuck the code switching. I wish that I could say rage against the machine and fuck all of that and you don't have to do all of that, but that's just not realistic. It's not realistic for what it means to be a black person in America, especially if you're trying to exist in corporate spaces and things like that. You know, we have to know how to jump in and out of those worlds. There is no way around that. We have to know how to exist in in both of those worlds. But what I advocate for is finding yourself in both of those spaces, being able to be as authentic to yourself as you can and taking a break from wearing the mask, indulge in yourself. And it doesn't have to be like this huge act of, I don't know, it doesn't have to be a huge gesture. It can be something as small as trying sushi for the first time. That's one of the things that I was one of the first things on my list that I indulged in. Because apparently it's Black people don't eat sushi. Black people don't eat raw fish, apparently. Like I've, it's always been painted as something that was, that's what white people do. That's not a Black person thing. But I've always been intrigued by sushi, you know? I mean, it just, it's like a little ball of rice with some fish on it. I'm from New Orleans. Like <laughs> we love fish, like we love seafood, you know? So like, I'm very intrigued by that. And so one of the things that I did I made this list of 10 things I call it my list of shit to do and on my list of shit to do I put try sushi on there and so I went to a sushi restaurant and I sat down and I ordered about 5 different types of sushi and I did that by myself in within myself and I tried sushi for the first time and I realized that I really like sushi I'm not so much into like the straight up raw sushi But I can do some smoked salmon or something like that, you know, a little deep fried uh, sushi or something. But like finding those little moments, those little things that give me joy on a personal level and really indulging in those things every chance that I get. It doesn't erase the reality of carrying the world on our shoulders and the reality of what it means to be a black person in America. But being intentional about providing myself with opportunities for pure joy, it helps to create some level of balance for me. And so I take those moments as often as I can. And I encourage my villagers to take those moments as often as I can, because not only do they Give us a reprieve from the weight of it all, but they help us to connect with ourselves in a much more deep and meaningful way. And at the end of the day, that connection to self is what gets you through. That understanding and pure acceptance of who you are in all of your stages, in all of your phases, in all of your costumes and masks and put-ons or code switching or whatever it might be, understanding the truth and the reality of who you are at your core, that's what helps you withstand the weight of it all.
0: Wow. That is so eloquent and also very actionable. I love just the visual of you trying sushi for the first time and what that experience was like. I think whether you can relate to that specific thing or not, it's a reminder that there is so much out there in the simplest ways that can bring us joy and also lead to a feeling of accomplishment or being open-minded to try something new that perhaps your whole life you've been told that you wouldn't like because that's not what somebody from your background likes, right? And so that's just a really incredible practice and Latrice, it's just really been an honor to have you on the show and to hear your perspectives. And you're so educated and passionate. And it's clear to me that your work, like you were saying before, you are walking your talk. You're helping people and guiding them through these experiences with mental health and helping them heal and learn how to manifest and be in their power. And you're doing it alongside them, which I think is one of the best qualities of somebody as a coach, as a therapist. And, you know, one of your posts that I really enjoyed was you were talking about the creativity side of your work. You said that your entire adult life, your identity has been wrapped around the fact that you're a therapist. And you recently accepted that you're a creative who happens
1: to be a therapist, right? Yes. That was a part of. My personal journey of finding joy. I've always been a creative person. Growing up, I painted a mural on the closet door when I was like in high school. Like, I've always had this creativity inside of me, but I never really explored it. I never really felt safe to explore it. I never really felt like that was something that was for me, that I was deserving of that type of expression. So, I never really explored it that much. And so when I started doing podcasting, I remember there was a podcast conference in uh, Atlanta called A Pod Connection, ATL, and uh, it's a podcast conference for Black podcasters. And so I went to that conference and before that, they did this contest to win an opportunity to perform your show live. So we went through the nomination process and then people had to vote online and things like that. And I won. I was one of four podcasts that had the opportunity to present live. And so I went into that feeling like the underdog because I was like, oh my God, I'm doing this podcasting thing, and these other podcasts are so good. Like they have their structure is so solid. I was the only solo podcaster. I'm a solo podcaster. And so I was like, I'm the only solo podcaster. They're going to run circles around me and i got there and they were just as intimidated by me as i was by them and one of the hosts he came up to me and i was so nervous it was right before i was about to perform and he was like i'm so happy to meet you i'm so happy to meet you and i was like oh okay <laughs> you know he was like i love your show i love your show he was like man he was like you are so talented and then this other lady came up to me and she said, Oh, I met your dad outside in the parking lot. And I was like, How do you even know that that was my dad? Because, of course, he was bragging about his daughter being on this show, <laughs> doing this show. And she said, I just want you to know that I drove here just for your show. She had driven like six hours just to come and see me perform my show live. And that, Moment was the moment that I realized that I am a creative and that I am good at what I do. I'm very good at what I do. And that this is something that I believe I have been purposed to do is to use my creative gifts and talents to educate Black women about healing and to help facilitate healing in the Black community so that we can become as prosperous as we need to in all of the many definitions of what that word means. And so my identity as a therapist first had to shift because I realized that my experience as a therapist was secondary to my purpose as a creative. And that was my journey. That was my awakening. And so I believe that we're on a shared journey. Everybody is on a journey. We are on this journey together. We're just at different points in that journey. And it's important for us to be able to share our stories with each other. So that's what I do. Well,
0: you are gifted with this and it's no surprise that you have raving fans because your voice is so pleasant to listen to. And like I said earlier, just so I don't want to overuse the word eloquent, but I it's just true. Like you just speak so well. I I could just listen to you forever. And I'm curious uh, because I've checked out your podcast and The last episode looked like it was posted in April 2019. You did 68 episodes. So where does your podcast stand right now? Are you still recording? Are they, I mean, we're going to link to it in the show notes. So for the listener, if you are as eager to continue listening to Latrice as, as I am, you can find the links to her website where you can learn more about all of her programs and her Facebook group and every, all these amazing offerings that Latrice has. Our show notes for this episode are at WellEvator.com, which is spelled W-E-L-L-E-V-A-T-R.com. If you go to the podcast section, you'll find her episode and everything that we've referenced, anything she's talked about today. There's a whole transcript there. Everything is there to make it super easy for you. And I hope that you go and check out the 68 episodes that are available. But where's number 69 and beyond Latrice? And is a new season coming out? I think I saw you talking about that on Twitter. I'm super curious.
1: Yeah. So everybody has been asking (laughs) for the new episodes and I am working on new episodes. I'm working on new material. Like I said, I live what I teach. I definitely do my best to walk the walk because I really believe that the tools that I teach and educate my community on our life tools. Um, This is the reality of life. And so I live those things. One of the things that I'm always stressing is the importance of taking care of your mental health and that at the end of the day, you don't owe anybody an explanation when it comes to taking care of yourself. So I had to take a break last year from everything because I just was not in a place in my life where I was able to freely create. I was in a very dark space. I the job that I had, I hated. I was doing a lot of traveling which started out pretty good, but then I got married and I was still traveling. And so I wasn't happy. In fact, I wasn't just not happy, I was miserable. And so I had to kind of pause for the cause so that I could get my mental health together. I linked up with a new therapist, Miss Diane, and she is amazing. She's still my therapist to this day. And she helped me to really face some things and make some decisions about my life and refocus what it was that I wanted to do and what direction I was going in. And so I really spent the last year or so just focusing on myself. And I've moved back home now, got a new job. I'm in a much, much happier space and I'm able to create now at a level that I have never really been able to create before. And so I'm working on new episodes, but I'm also a part of me kind of feels like I personally have moved past where Unicorns Talk podcast currently is. That was a phase in my life that I am very grateful to have been able to document in the way that I did and to be able to help other people through my own journey in that point in time. But I'm in a new chapter now. I'm in a new phase of my life. And my creative energy wants to now document this phase of my life. And a lot of that is really honing my craft. So I'm doing a lot more behind the scenes work right now and figuring out what that looks like. I have my online academy, my membership program, which is Trust Village Academy, and that is uh, really going to be that it's the home. It is the home for all of my teachings and things like that. So anybody that's interested in getting new content, they can join Trust Village Academy and get new content there. But then I'm also really kind of stretching myself in terms of learning more about what it means to be a creative and what type of creative I want to be. So doing more producing event coordination, I'm working with an organization called Afros and Audio. Afros and Audio is a network dedicated to Black podcasters, and we focus on building community as well as educating Black podcasters about how to produce high quality content, and to be able to monetize that content. And so that has been a very, very enriching experience, because I've had the opportunity for the really the first time in my life to get out of the silo. I've been so used to creating in a silo. And now I'm having opportunities to collaborate with people who are just as good as I am people who can match my creativity level, and in some cases exceeded. So I'm learning more about producing and directing and, you know, like being on the other side of things, not necessarily being on the front of it. So I'm enjoying this new space that I'm in and like discovering what I'm actually capable of. I feel like I'm just really starting to scratch the surface because I've only been identifying as a creative for like two years, so I'm really just scratching the surface of what I'm capable of, and I'm looking forward to seeing that continue to grow.
2: That's beautiful, Latrice. It's also good encouragement for me being a multi-passionate creative and entrepreneur that sometimes I have found myself getting so fixated and stuck on a title or a certain career track. And I just love that you have blown up the box and you are just doing what your soul feels called to do. And I want to thank you for reflecting that back to me.
1: Yeah. It's not a box. It's like an octagon, you know? It's like, like a- <laughs> Yeah. I I have many sides.
2: Yeah. Yeah. No, I feel that. And it's just wonderful confirmation and encouragement to receive that from you, to not limit ourselves, not to hold ourselves back from what our deepest calling might be. And and no matter what age we're at to realize that look you know there's no timeline there's no set script or formula we got to stick to so i just want to thank you you know as we wrap up here for not only reminding and encouraging me but i'm sure a lot of our listeners are going to feel very empowered and bolstered by that too so thank you
1: absolutely Absolutely. I'm a talker. You know, I'll talk for as long as y'all let me. You have to, <laughs> you have to say, okay, girl, it's time to wrap it up now. But yeah, I appreciate you all for giving me the opportunity to come and share my journey, my experience, and hopefully to educate some individuals who may not otherwise um, have had exposure to these types of conversations. So I think that is a very, very bold act of allyship on your part. And I hope that other people are encouraged to mimic that behavior as well. So thank you.
0: Thank you. And I hope that it's true that maybe there are people in our audience that haven't felt represented or heard or understood as well. And we want to make this an open, safe space for everyone. So we're very grateful for all these different people that may have tuned in to hear you, Latrice, and it's just been wonderful to hear you speak.
1: Thank you. Thanks for listening and
0: getting out of your comfort zone with us today.
1: For show notes and more high-performance resources to help you thrive, go to WellEvator.com. That's W-E-L-L-E-V-A-T-R.com.